Welcome to High on the Hog with Merrill Schindler and co-hosts Joanna Belson and Janice Hardoon. This is a podcast about all things cannabis. Tune in every week as Merrill, Joanna, and Janice discuss the medical benefits of CBD and THC products with each other, as well as with informed guests from the cannabis industry and the lawmakers who regulate it. Enjoy the show. There are few people more deeply involved in the world of cannabis than Michael Miller. As it says here, cannabis editor and evangelist for the LA Weekly, associate publisher of cannabis, and a guy who has spoken on cannabis just about everywhere and written about cannabis just about everywhere. Um, and who, like so many of the people we've had, I'm assuming came to cannabis through a personal experience, your um, your accident. That's true. I wish I didn't have the experience, but I'm thrilled that I had it to be with you here today and have all this these extraordinary people in my life and to have uh, Michael 3.0, as I call it, Michael the lawyer, Michael the banker, and now Michael the cannabis evangelist. That's awesome. <laughs> Uh, tell us about the accident. Tell us what happened and how it changed. Uh, yeah, sure. And uh, pardon me if I get a little emotional when I talk. I, I still gonna, do yeah. years after. It was actually a series of three. Mom always said things happen in three. Three accidents? Uh, yeah, kind of crazy. You know, I, uh, I first uh, firstborn kid of a, you know, Jewish father and went to law school to make my father proud, not because I wanted to and had some reasonable success. But I, w I started in the heyday of hostile M&A in New York, moved from uh, worked on you know, the largest transaction at the time when 22 billion was a large amount of money. That was the RJR Nabisco mm -hmm. deal, takeover of Eve Hutton, Singer, Sewing Machine, yeah. Allied, so all things that you would remember. And then, um, but I took the New York bar and then came to California and literally saw my first palm tree and said, oh my God, I took the wrong bar. <laughs> I had accepted a job. Um, I was um, sun challenged because at the time, um, the, the law firm first year jobs, uh, the salary went from fifty eight thousand to seventy six thousand dollars, and my uh, I remember shutting our books in law school and saying, "Oh my God, we don't even have to pass our third year test," you know. And my dad at the time was making fifty six thousand, and I was one of the few who were scared to tell my father that this pitcher was going to be making more than him. So that was something. But anyway, so I um, took that job at Wilkie. Um, Pretty hard work, um, but I came out to LA, saw my first palm tree, and said, "Darn, took the wrong bar." And I'm going to get some Wall Street experience and find the biggest firm to move me out here. That was Scadden Arps at the time. That was one of the first, uh, the very first hourly billing firm to bill a billion dollars. Wow. Do the math on that. That's a lot of hours. So I came out here working on corporate transactions and also financing for a gentleman by the name of Mike Milken before he mm -hmm. decided to, to go on vacation. <laughs> and um, as a result of his vacation, and they were a very large percentage of the Skadden business, I was laid off with most of the M&A team. And uh, literally uh, a month after layoff, um, after renting a movie um, from a movie store where my condo was just on Westgate and Wilshire, I was walking in a crosswalk and got hit about 40 miles an hour by a, a driver, um, not intentional. The old days when he actually, actually turned the radio volume down and mm -hmm. he wasn't paying attention, hit me. Next thing I knew, fortunately, I was on his windshield and it was an SUV. I'm a big guy, it lifted me up instead of knocked me down, but then threw me um, and I broke about a third of the bones in my body. It took about a year and a half to learn how to walk again. It's major surgery and you can imagine the emotional trauma. Um, 
How old were you when this happened? I was uh, 29 when okay. that happened. And then uh, it, just craziness. Um, I started with a four to eight pain threshold after everything and started, I took my first opiate July of um, 1990. And I'm not proud to say it was a 25 year uh, history with opiates, not because I wanted to get high, um, but because uh, every doctor I had said, take them. And it's the only thing that you can do to get rid of your pain. And to be a dad, to be a lawyer, to be a banker, I needed to think. And it was the only way that suppressed my pain. And as we have often discussed here, um, overprescribing is almost standard out there. It's um, it, it is the rare. Well, I think doctor it was. I think they've reeled it in. No well, question. Well, they were legally required to reel it. Unfortunately, it wasn't during my history right, of right. the reeling. It's more recent. And uh, all my doctors were more concerned of just making the pain away and not understanding the repercussions of that. And this was before the age of fentanyl and such. So uh, yeah, thankfully, the, I wasn't involved in yeah. that at all. And I'm a, you know, I'm a nice Jewish boy from Cincinnati, Ohio. I mm-hmm. wouldn't go near anything I can't even spell. But, it, you know, that was the first leg of the story five years later. Um, if you can believe I was, if you can remember, you've been here for a while, 19, early 90s, I was carjacked in Brentwood. I only had a $25,000 Suzuki Jeep, but it was new, and I got held up at gunpoint, pistol whipped, and further injuries. Um, in Brentwood? Right in Brentwood, yeah. Wow. Right in Brentwood. And then, um, it's funny you say right in Brentwood, because I'm going to cue you, you're going to say that again. So um, I was a Brentwood native as you well. You were. Okay, so five and a half years ago, say it. <laughs> In Brentwood? Correct. <laughs> At a stop sign in front of Toscana. Oh, I love Going to dinner and a 27-year-old millennial texter who just had to get that last text out hit me at 41 miles an hour, acknowledged he was texting, and as a result of the early injuries was nearly paralyzed on the right side <sighs> of my body. Um, that was... That was a, a challenging recovery. I'm um, betting you don't go to Brentwood a lot anymore. I don't like to. <laughs> Unfortunately, my <laughs> ex-wife and children live there half the time. That's <laughs> so, funny. so my scrotum tightens for multiple reasons now when I go to Brenton. So anyway, so I had more spinal surgery, a uh, 15-hour procedure. Most of my, my vertebrae are, are metal, and it was very challenging. And I had a friend who saved my life, literally. I had never, uh, he said, Michael, you got to get off the pills. I said, I know, I, but I don't know what to do. He says, you got to smoke weed. I'm like, dude, I'm an athlete. I'm from Ohio. My Jewish mother would kill me, blah, blah, blah. He said, no. You don't think your Jewish mother was smoking it? No. I can, actually, I taught her how to vape at 89 years old, okay, and that's okay. another part of the story. <laughs> we'll but get there. Fantastic. So uh, he said, come over the house. Um my wife will make dinner and uh, I'm going to give you something that I think will help. I did just to appease him because I love the guy and he was trying to help. And he gave me a horrible tasting oil that I put under my tongue. And 40 minutes later, he said, are you okay? And I said, I think so. Why? He said, you're crying. I said, and I didn't even realize that I was crying. And I, I said, oh my God. He said, what? I said, I don't feel pain. He said, well, that's great. Isn't I said, it's great, but it's the first time I haven't felt pain in 25 years not taking a pill. So it was bittersweet. I was excited and I was, my mind was racing. I was confused and I was angry because why did I have to go through 25 years of opiates if this could have been told to me? Where did he get the product at that time? I mean, there weren't stores on every street corner. Uh, in Brentwood. Yeah, he actually, yeah, <laughs> he, he was a friend. So he, um, he was actually in the business and he had a medical pharmacy. 
So okay. he was my sort of mentor and educator in the space. And I, I attribute, you know, saving a big part of my emotional life. Um, you have seen it going from very underground to very overground. I have, yeah. It's been an extraordinary journey. It really has. Um, in the about five years that I've been in it, um, and as you mentioned, um, for whatever reason, I've now, uh, I, I was in 38 countries this year, um, and I probably will be the first to visit or speak in every legalized country in the world. There's 44. N next month, it's Malta, Portugal, and South Africa. Uh, so I'm getting there. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's very interesting having that global perspective, um, having come from a leading state like California, um, and being an American citizen and then going to other countries which are just formulating legalization strategies, policies with respect to you know social equity and expungement and and involving the small farmer. It, I have said it before, it's almost a little bit like Back to the Future where I get into my DeLorean and I go back in time even though it's the same time, but it's like it was in California 1996 or even earlier when you go to a country like Colombia or Panama or Jamaica. In what capacity are you doing your speaking? Um, um, in what capacity? Um, yeah, is it through an organization? Is it through a, a, a product? What is it through? Yeah, I mean, well, I have uh, you know numerous business interests. And well, I, and I, your legal I, degree comes in handy yeah, again. And, and the legal degree has, <laughs> yeah. It was funny, when I wasn't in the cannabis industry and was out of law, I wanted to hide my lawyerness because in America, it's being a lawyer is the butt of all jokes, no matter how good you are, what you do. And it's interesting that in the cannabis industry, it's one of the most respected professions because it's the most necessary and probably overregulated industry. So in my cat capacity, it's generally as Michael Miller, a person, and I'm usually there to either host a conference, MC a conference, moderate a panel, give a keynote talk on something related to the history of opiates or cannabis or globalization and legalization, what the world will look like in five years. Is CBD the new aspirin, so forth and so on? There's a, a dozen or so different topics. But the legalization strategy, I, th I think, are the most interesting, the uh, most extraordinary um, situation, almost a Forrest Gumpian moment for me was... Uh, in May, when I when I, I gave a, a little talk in uh, Cartagena, Colombia, and uh, I I'm somewhat opinionated, and uh, I don't mind being so, and it's okay if people don't agree with me. But I came out pretty strongly against a, a Colombia government, and I coined a term called "cana mercantilism," because what I was seeing, being an economist also by training, um, what I was seeing more and more of was replication of a very old model whereby you know great britain exploited resources from weaker countries around the world with cheap or slave labor brought those natural resources to mother england created manufactured products and then sold those products back to those nations and i stepped back and i started hearing all these countries talking about our export market our export market our export market and realizing you know at the end of the day we're dealing with a agricultural product that's going down in value every single day and it's starting to look like broccoli it really is and one day it will be priced like broccoli because every one of the close to the 200 nations in the world will be growing it so i called out the colombian government to say do you want to be 
just exporting another crop like coffee or flowers. They do about two billion in coffee, number two in the world. And 90% of the coffee is sold by small farmers. It's a beautiful model. I'm sure you've heard of Juan Valdez. Juan Valdez doesn't exist as a person. Juan Valdez is like our sun-kissed. It is a co-op to assist small farmers. They provide the back office, the legal, the marketing to sell this coffee. They built the $2 billion industry. Cannabis in less than five years could be a $3 billion industry. But if it's only selling the product itself, it won't be because it will be commoditized. What I have called on nations to do is become Israel, become a startup nation of cannabis, create a public-private academic partnership, create an institution, create a institute of excellence in endocannabinoid science, and you create STEM programs to teach. You train these kids. You develop intellectual property and medicine based on the plant, and then you sell those medicines. That will lift a third world country to first world status. That's dazzling. So people are starting to listen, and what do you know? 15 people surrounded me at the end, little men in ties and a lovely young woman, and I said, oh my God, I'm either being arrested because the Duque government is not a really big proponent of free speech or cannabis. It turned out a joint coalition of senators had just formed to try to legislate for adult use and social equity and expungement. And what do you know? They asked for my help. Um, They retained me. And I lived in Colombia for five weeks and I helped draft the amendment to the Colombian Constitution. It was, I mean, an extraordinary experience. As a model, Israel is pretty amazing. It is, yeah. Um, uh, Joanna recently met um, Raphael Meshulam. Yeah, so I was telling you, he actually interviewed him. Ah, okay. So, hello, my meeting is nothing. Michael was it is to... something. He's an extraordinary human being. Yeah, yeah. But it was... Without him, everything we're talking about would be kind of nothing. Just well, basically nothing. Yeah, you know, yeah. You never know what would happen, but certainly he and his team played a fundamental role. Many people don't know that um, he was following up on the research of an American scientist. Oh. Okay, and many people don't know that Roger Adams, a brilliant scientist, who's who is the first to synthesize cannabidiol cbd but nobody knows about him but now they do now they do (laughs) and you can google him so what happened to roger well uh, a gentleman who we all love j edgar hoover and another gentleman which we all love um mr anslinger um suppressed his research in 1941 and prevented him from doing any further work so without roger an american I don't believe that Rafi would have been able to do what he did because he will say publicly that he was simply following up on Dr. Adams' work. And the only reason that he got involved with it, because uh, the Israeli Defense Forces um, had just busted a major stash of Lebanese hashish. And they knew that there was some science going on at Hebrew University. And they gave him a call and said, Dr. Mishulam, at 41 years old, we understand you're exploring some things in the drugs. Would you like 12 kilos of hashish? <laughs> <laughs> it's fresh. And Rafi, being the guy he is, said, yeah, sure, I'll come and get it. And if you can believe a 41-year-old guy picked up 12 kilos of hash, put it in an 
briefcase and went on the public bus in he, <laughs> from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv to pick up this hashish. And that is cannabinoid history. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's a good visual. I, as has been said, I see further before I stand on the shoulders of giants. Absolutely. You know, yeah. So yes, you're absolutely correct. So um, in sixty in sixty two, he um, follows up on Adam's research and 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 resynthesizes CBD. Sixty three um, tetrahydrocannabinol follows. He then brings over from the Czech Republic a brilliant professor, non Jewish, but his wife was Professor Lumer Anush. And in his lab, um, in the next decade, they discover what is now called the endocannabinoid system. They discover the CB1 and CB2 receptor. At that time, they did not believe that a, a plant could affect something in the human body, which I find interesting because most of our meds are synthesized from nature. So they were looking aggressively for something in the human system instead of outside in the phyto world. And they came upon these CB1, CB2 receptors. And then they said, aha, Mother Nature or God or whatever you believe in doesn't put things in your body unless it's needed. It's a system. So then they went on looking for what does that CB1 and CB2 receptor want? And that's when they discovered anandamide and AG2, which is sort of the, the chemical link and allows our body to accept the cannabinoids in our system because at the end of the day, they're like a hungry puppy, ha <laughs> and they're waiting for this. And the reason that our body has an effect is because we don't make enough of it internally. That's the beautiful magic of all this. If our body didn't want it, it would be a negative effect. Mm -hmm. But we have it, we are under-provided by our endosystem with the cannabinoids that we need for whatever reason, how we have biologically and gen gen genetically grown over tens of thousands of years as a human body. So what they discovered in the laboratory was that a phyto situation could affect an endo situation. And that was really the major science. And then they started to look at why and how. And Israel was just a marvelous training ground. Um, and many people also don't know the very first medical program in the world. And why? Because they had something called suicide bombs. They had something called very unfriendly neighbors. And a lot of Israeli Defense Forces veterans suffering from the highest degree of the world of post-traumatic stress syndrome and husbands of wives of those officers suffering from the very same thing and children suffering from bombs and sirens going off in the middle of the night. So 1973, and many people are not aware of this, they first started the first clinical research in Israel. It's extraordinary. And presently today, Israel's the number one per capita country in the world, Merrill. 52,000 medical patients relative to their population. It's an amazing story. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, Israel has the highest percentage, per capita percentage of, um, of, of vegans. Very interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. You I know, think there's probably, that, well, yeah. vegans are typically Buddha-like, spiritual, yeah. and most cannabis people are also. Yeah. And I then, had a great experience. I was able to go to Israel in 2017, and I visited Bull Pharma, um, and I was able to go get a tour of their whole uh, corporate setup that they had. It was like right outside of Tel Aviv. It was pretty incredible. Um, it was right when I got into cannabis, too, so it was fascinating that I got to go to Israel and see the big behemoths and how they do it over there. Oh, and it's when you, um, there's yeah. actually a, a 
page on Wikipedia dedicated to innovations from Israel, and you discover that, among other things, the cherry tomato. And well, hold the, on. You, As my son would say, Wikipedia is not a good source. They teach them that in school. That's true. However, there is a whole innovation museum in Israel that you can go to where they highlight everything from Waze to Waze. the electronic legs. Yeah. USB. Um, yeah, yeah. Yes. Anyway. Well. Well, I, I like I like my Wikipedia. Thank you. You must you must have to do some serious cramming when you travel because each country is going to have different rules, regulations, uh, moral codes, etc. Does your head swim? It does. It does. Uh, um, but I'm a geek at heart. I'm I'm a, a history and, and fact and law junkie, so I, I don't see it as a, a problem. I see it as a challenge, and it I, it's complexities fascinate me i don't see them as a problem i see them as as uh, solutions waiting to happen and the the actual ease or difficulty of it is is less complex because most of them have nothing right um the the issues of if you if you're deciding to be legal the question is how right there are actually three three ways you can have votes if you have a democracy. Unfortunately, there's not enough countries in the world where there are votes. And if you have a federal government like ours, votes don't matter, sadly, to our citizenry. That's why we have a state system. You can have it done legislatively where a parliament passes things as representatives of the people. You can have an executive, a president uh, or a dictator simply rubber stamp, pound the table and say it's legal. The most fascinating situation I've seen relates to both Colombia and Panama, where you have an executive that was against cannabis, a population that wanted it but didn't have the power, but you had a constitutional court as a result of a lawsuit saying, hold on, let's take a look at this. And in Latin America, a number of those countries' constitutions are based upon the UN's human rights delegations and conventions. And in that terminology is the term personality. Now, we as Americans think of personality as, can you make me laugh? Can you make me uh, think? Um, Are we inward? Are we outward? But personality under the UN convention means a combination of things, liberty, freedom, personal dignity, the ability to do things with your body however you want to do without government intervention. And in both Colombia and Mexico, that word personality was read into the Constitution to mean that medical cannabis was a constitutional right. And as a lawyer, that fascinated me to know and intellectually. Yeah. Yeah. And plenty of countries, too, where it's considered to be the devil's own um, um, medicine, I assume, that that you always have to, um, I I mean, having traveled back in the day with a backpack on, the um, the, the underground newspaper of... uh, of travelers will always tell you if you're going to Bulgaria, they'll they'll dry shave you at the border. You got to get rid of your your beard first. Don't go in, but don't don't go don't go anywhere near there with long hair. They'll cut it at the border, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, you know, there, there's there there is interestingly, I I mean, you're speaking of law, but there's also what perhaps the people at the border are feeling. Um, they'll see they'll see a joint in your bag, and next thing you know, you're behind bars. 
Yeah, well, certainly, um, you know, the laws are what they are. And, and in, in most countries that are becoming legal, just like in California, if you ask anybody, is prohibition over? Of course it's over, right? You to think that the headlines were prohibition is over, but I don't know if Joanna and Merrill, you're aware, but are you aware that 81% of the counties in California are dry? No, I was not aware of this. Only 19% of Californians live in a county that it is legal. Prohibition is not even close to being over in California. Right. It is state legal, but under the state law, they gave 100% authority to municipalities and cities to determine if cannabis was legal for recreational use or adult use. And 81% have said no. So you could be pulled over out there in, in the boonies and uh, they look at your glove compartment and they find a, um, a vape pen and uh, you're, you're in the Huskow. That's absolutely correct. If you don't have a medical license yeah. and can demonstrate that you bought that vape or that joint or that tincture in a medical license facility, you're going down, right? Yeah. And that's not what people believe. Not at so all. So the fight that we all have is, is education because the war is not even close to being over and the battles are going on daily and most many people are just sitting back okay we you know it's it's adult use now in california we can sit back and you know do whatever we want to do but it's not true a fraction of the state has adult use and then where we are we're inundated with illegal shops around this neighborhood which is such a bummer it is a bummer um it's a bummer in many reasons for the moms and dads, um, the entrepreneurs that have risked and worked very hard with their uh, capital to start a business um, and are just trying to get by, sometimes dealing with 70 to 80% city, local, and state taxes and not being able to deduct their overhead under 280E of the federal tax laws. And they have to sell a pre-roll for $15 to make a few bucks when right down the street, there's a line out the door to buy that same pre-roll for three or four bucks. and That's that, run on a generator with no air conditioning. That's right, and they're making three or four times the profit. It's very, very wrong. The, w w there will always be a black market. Water will always find its way out. People will, will always want something cheaper if it's the same or maybe a little bit less. But I'm just wondering now, and I ask you, if you I, mean, I, I say we don't have a vaping problem now, we have a black market problem. Every person that got sick or died bought something illegal. Now, if you think you're gonna buy something cheaper and you know it's not the same thing, but it looks kinda like the same thing, you, you're, you're gonna buy it. If you want those Louis Vuitton uh, shoes and it's $100 instead of $1,000, I get it, right, uh, economically. Um, but if those shoes are gonna cause you to get one of your feet amputated, you probably <laughs> won't wear that shoe, right? So I just sit back and think it's a bad thing, but is there a silver lining here? Is there a silver lining in that it took sickness, sadly it took death to inform a public to no longer shop in the black market? I don't know. Yeah, we still have guns for sale. We do, lots of guns. <laughs> you know, like you, I'm a journalist and you write your column. Is your column in the weekly, is it weekly? Um, it's, it, uh, depends on things okay. sometimes sometimes it's daily sometimes it's monthly yeah i was gonna say i hope you read my article last week Merrill, because it it's very important in your life tell me about oh, it it's it's 
Well, we know what he's doing the rest of the day if he has it. He's going to have to. Be, and I'm going to get him it. all the products to try. Yeah, last last week was the sex edition. Oh, and, okay. and all of the editors wrote an article. And my article, I interviewed um, about 400 people from sex workers to Raphael Meshulam and his wife. I uh, did a major survey, and uh, my article was, Is Cannabis Mother Nature's Little Blue Pill? So <laughs> I'm going to test you. You're going to tell me about that. But the answer is, yes, it is. We actually agree. Um, we had a wonderful guest um, on the show named Ashley Manta. She goes by the Canisexual. Mm. And she's a fantastic story, and she teaches couples how to introduce THC into their sex life. and. She's fantastic. That's wonderful. Well, I was asking about, you, know, you sit down to write a column, and it's like, I, I, the question has to be, well, so where do I begin today? Where am I going to go today? It's not, gee, I don't have anything to write about. I wonder what I'll, maybe I can I can give you a list something. of things to write about. You just have, <laughs> the, the, it just expands logarithmically. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, most publicists know um, what I'm looking for. I get hit up 50 to 100 uh, presentations a week. Most of them are rejected in the first two or three sentences. As I said, it, I don't do articles about the next pre-roll or the next, um, what I call same shit, different bottle um, CBD product. Um, I try to, just like in my interviews, I try to ask the questions that aren't asked. I try to write the stories that people want to hear that are not being told. So I try to step out of the fray and think about the more macro issues, the things that are affecting the industry on a daily basis, um, the bigger things, um, whether it's legalizations, whether it's medical issues, whether it's equal rights, whether it's expungement, things that you would you could normally see in an editorial or an op-ed in the New York Times, but with less opinion and more thought leadership, shall I say, in interviewing, you know, leading. Um, uh, spokespeople, both who are executives, uh, pioneers, icons, um, moms, dads with sick kids, m kids with sick parents, um, and people that have moved from Chardonnay to a puff at night or not taking three glasses of scotch to having a couple puffs at night. And so th I try to, to find the stories that would interest everyone. Um, my approach is not to focus on the 42 million users out of a population of 320. That's not really my audience. I, I, I want them to read. I want everybody to read. That's the audience for a High Times. That's the audience for an MJ Biz. They already have that readership. My view is if my, I want to push the dominoes down, reduce stigma, and have cannabis treated better than alcohol that has no value, to a person. So I'm going after the 280 million non-users to educate and teach. I'm going after global readers that are interested in being educated that can help in their country do what we did here. And that is why you were an evangelist. You spread the word. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a funny story. I would it's it would be a horribly narcissistic for me to name that myself and I apologize to anybody who thinks it is it's not. I it was better than what I was being called for a while. I, uh, one night at, a, at an event, um, um, I had too much with a gentleman by the name of Calvin Brodus, known as Snoop Dogg to mm -hmm. other people. And uh, he just loved the fact that I was a white Jewish dude who was new in the industry, hadn't partaken 
till he was 54 and we had a lot of fun together and then he just said i'm going to start calling you the uh the cg and i i didn't even i had no idea and everybody's looking at him like well, like the cg is he like being mean or sarcastic <laughs> and then i'm like well soup like what does that mean he's like my brother, you're the Caucasian gangster. Nah. <laughs> so that stuck for a little while. You did a good Snoop impression too. I liked it. That's good. It's funny. You are the evangelist. Michael Miller, you've been a pleasure. Thank you very much for the time. Thank you, Marilyn. Really Thank you, John. Thank Your you story so is amazing. And I think we just got the smallest smidgen of your life here. Yeah, I don't want to bore you and your listeners for too Not long. in the least. Uh, we, we do not bore easily. We'll just take another CBD and we get our, our patience is, is limitless. Thank you so much. It's Meryl Schindler. It's Joanna Belson. It's Phil Gian Grande. It's High on the Hog, the podcast. High on the Hog, it's your one place to find information about medical cannabis, about the stuff that's really the talk of the world. Find us on iTunes, find us on Amazon, find us on the internet. High in the Hog, the podcast.com. That's High in the Hog, the podcast.com. Tell a friend.